time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there and please stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I read the news today, oh boy, about a lucky man who And though the news was rather sad Well, I just had to laugh I saw the photograph He blew his mind out in a car That the lights had changed A crowd of people stood aside They'd seen his face before Nobody was really sure if he was from the house of
Woke up, fell out of bed, grabbed a comb across my head. My way of says, and I had a cup. Looking up, I noticed I was late. Grabbed my coat, grabbed my hat, made the books and seconds flat. By my way of says, and I had a smoke. Somebody spoke and I went into a dream. Ah, 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 Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is an associate professor of African-American studies at Princeton and the author of a new book, Race After Technology. Her name is Ruha Benjamin. She joins me by phone. Ruha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, This is really interesting. There are a number of... uh, uh, interesting aspects that that come out in your book. One is the the new gym code, but but also talking about how emerging technologies can reinforce white supremacy and deepen social inequity. How is uh, technology different than other tools, irons and microwave ovens and cars? So in many ways, the automated aspect of the emerging technologies that I'm looking at and the fact that um, the way that the technology is designed is sort of hidden from view, the decisions that go into training technologies to make decisions. So unlike, say, a microwave, an automated decision system in the context of healthcare or criminal justice or education is often taking the place of human decision makers. And yet, Humans have to teach the technology or the algorithm how to make decisions, either through the data that's used or the various ways the algorithm is designed. And so part of it is thinking about how human human decision makers are being displaced in the process. And the assumption that technology is going to be not only more efficient than human beings, but more fair and neutral. 
so that's a, a common fallacy that my book is trying to um, trying to get us to think critically about. Well, and and I I I, I sort of get it, but I, I'm hoping you'll you'll be able to explain more to me because I, sure. I see a lot of these things, algorithms, for example, that are trained to track human behavior and then follow up with offers and I, and I'll give you a quick example. I mm-hmm. used to blog a lot. If I wrote something mm-hmm. about Winston Churchill, <laughs> the next time I went online, yeah. It would be books and <laughs> movies and you know, Winston yeah. Churchill stuff, you know, coming yeah. out my ears. And and I yeah. understand that and and it seems yeah. like that would be the same for anyone regardless of of race or or economic status. Sure. So it's a good example of targeted advertising, and that's certainly sure. one realm in which we can see the new Jim Code at play. I'll give you a quick example yeah, um, from the context of housing. So um, in my grandparents' uh, day in Los Angeles, um, housing developers would put up flyers that were trying to entice white home buyers to purchase the homes. And the way that they would target white home buyers would tell them through these flyers that they would have beneficial restrictions built into the housing deed so that uh, black people and other unwanted groups couldn't move into the area. So that's the kind of old school targeted advertising. And the assumption on the part of many people is that somehow we've moved away from that kind of discrimination. Um, And in fact, for targeted advertising online, if someone is selling housing, they can actually decide which demographics of people they want to exclude from seeing those advertisements. So you can say, I have the housing, I'm selling housing, and I want to exclude Latinx people or black people from ever seeing this ad. So you can sit right next to a friend um, and be on the same platform, and you will be seeing different ads than your friend based on the way that the data is targeting you versus them. There's a, in fact, there's a class action lawsuit against a set of housing developers in D.C. who were excluding elderly people from seeing their housing ads. So this doesn't just impact people of different racial ethnic groups. It, there's ageism built into it, classism built into it. But one of the things that my book is also trying to get us to think about beyond social media and beyond targeted advertising is how almost every uh, institution in our society is adopting automated systems in order to in, in order to make decisions. So in the state of Michigan, for example, a few years ago, Governor Snyder adopted a system called Midas that was supposed to identify people for unemployment fraud. We know after the fact that it was misidentifying almost 93% of the people who were flagged. And then, but in the meantime, it really wreaked havoc on people's lives. You know, people went bankrupt. They were paying money they didn't owe. Um, yeah, people lost houses. They were people they, lost houses. It, it really wreaked havoc, you know. And so this is an example of the assumption that this system that had very little human oversight was somehow going to be more efficient and more equitable than if human beings were making those decisions. And we see examples of that not only in the context of, say, public benefits, as in Michigan, we see it in the context of health care and education and criminal justice. And I'm happy to offer examples of all of those, but the, the, the main point is that the problem is even bigger than targeted advertising. It's affecting every aspect of our lives, and we have to sort of understand that um, that the people who are designing these systems are not necessarily thinking critically about the way that they're harming people. And, and that suggests that they're not intentionally harming people. 
Exactly. And so what I want to suggest is that indifference to social reality and to histories of discrimination can be even more harmful than malicious intent. A lot of times when I present these ideas, people want an example of a kind of racist boogeyman behind the screen who's actively trying to target (laughs) people. And what I have to get us to think about is that if you keep looking for the racist boogeyman, you're going to miss the way that indifference to these issues is actually the driving force. It's not the intentional desire to harm, but it's precisely because people are not thinking critically about other forms of systemic inequality that computer systems are now reproducing those forms of of discrimination. It it reminds me a little bit of uh, back in the 60s and 70s when I was growing up that um, there were a lot of people who were trying very hard to adjust and and think in terms of of diversity. And for a lot of people, for the first time, and I, I remember there was this dumb thing that a lot of white people used to say that they didn't realize was offensive. They, you know, it mm. was with all the best intentions, and it was some of my best friends are colored. <laughs> yes, and and they uh, and they my best friends are colored. Yeah, and and but they yeah. meant it with with such sincerity and didn't realize yeah. at all that they were doing harm. Yeah, absolutely. The other one that goes along with that is. I don't see color or I don't see race. And so part of what's driving the inequality, the, the, the discriminatory design that are mediated through technology, it's precisely this unwillingness to look squarely at how racism has shaped our social reality. Because by not looking at that, by not seeing how race operates in society, we are unwittingly building it into our technical systems. And so what we need people to do is take off the blindfolds and actually look squarely at what's happening because otherwise it's getting built into all kinds of technical systems. A few weeks ago, some colleagues of mine published a study that looked at a healthcare algorithm that's used throughout our healthcare system all across the country affecting millions of people. And what they found was this particular system was... um, was undercounting um, the number of black people who needed healthcare services because of the way it was designed. And it was um, putting more services um, towards um, white patients. And it wasn't because the algorithm was taking explicit account of race. And it wasn't because the designers were trying to be racist, but it was because they had ignored the way that systemic inequality had shaped the healthcare system before this algorithm came along. And the fact that black patients on average incur fewer costs in terms of the healthcare system for a variety of reasons. And the designers of this system had used cost as a way to predict who in the future would need future healthcare services. And so that meant that more attention and more, um, more treatments were going towards um, white patients. And so for those who are interested, there's a, it was published in the, in, the, in the journal Science, and I've written a review um, in in uh, conjunction with that, just to get us to think about how that lack of awareness about um, social um, inequality is is actually be- the part of the problem that we have to deal with. More with Ruha Benjamin, associate professor of African American Studies at Princeton and author of Race After Technology, is straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling authors, photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to Genesee Health Plan. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. The Tom Summer Program.com. 
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More with Ruha Benjamin, Associate Professor of African American Studies at Princeton and author of Race After Technology is straight ahead. What's interesting about your book is, and as you said uh, a moment ago, uh, talking about this concept of I don't see race, that's humanly impossible for mm-hmm. any race to look at the the spectrum of human beings there are and not see mm-hmm. differences. I, that's humanly Absolutely. impossible. But but all of us have this this sense of comfort that that machines and technology don't have those biases. Mm, yes, exactly. And, 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 and so it's it, it this your book is a is a real revelation to me. I, it had not occurred to me at all that bias would be present in the designing of the equipment, the algorithms, the the software, the programming, even the niche marketing that happens. Absolutely. And that's one of the silver linings for me throughout um, sort of learning about this myself is that in many ways, technology and these systems are acting like a mirror onto our social reality. Things that we haven't seen before or haven't been willing to address before, we're faced with now in the context of these automated systems. And it's placing a mirror onto patterns that people have either ignored or explained away when presented in other ways. And so um, I hope that people will be able to look squarely at these patterns of inequality that we see in housing and education and healthcare and criminal justice. Now that we have a sort of, is see it through the eyes of hardware and software that's spitting back at us these, these, um, these ways that we have organized our society. How do we do it differently? And so there are a number of organizations and initiatives that are working to think around this idea of tech justice. And for those listeners who are interested, I have a resources tab on my website at ruhabenjamin.com that lists a number of these organizations and initiatives. There are three, I'll say four sort of um, buckets of action and organizing that's happening that I would um, alert everyone to. One is in the context of law and policy, changing the way that we hold um, tech development accountable and govern tech development. Right now, by leaving it purely in the in the private sector, we're ensuring that inequity is going to um, be reproduced through these systems so long as the profit imperative is the driving force. So we need other public values. We need public interest technology. And so there's a lot of people working on the legal and policy frameworks that need to be created to govern tech development. There's also in the context of education, we need to think about how we train people who are going into these fields with what kinds of disciplinary backgrounds, experiential insights, so that they don't they, they begin to understand the history of technology and the sociology, the way that technology is shaped by and impacts different groups. And so we, we want to rethink education at a really fundamental level. And so over the last year or two, I've been working with K through 12 educators and people in higher education to begin to seed a lot of these insights into the curriculum and to the pedagogy in which we're training um, future technologists. 
And then there's a lot happening in terms of community organizing and national organizing networks. There's a wonderful organization called Data for Black Lives. In Detroit, there's a Detroit Community Tech Initiative, which is a grassroots initiative that's really engaging everyday people in terms of not just tech literacy and the, and the kind of comfort around um, technology, but a critical capacity to question when, let's say, city governments are introducing new automated systems or facial recognition programs or all kinds of ways in which technology just kind of gets imposed upon communities without their input. And so um, there's a lot of great organizing happening at the local level in which everyday people feel empowered to speak back to those who promise that the technology is going to do some kind of good and help them when, in fact, we see so much evidence um, in the other direction. And so these are just some of the ways that people can get involved and support initiatives that are working to build um, tech, tech justice in our community and um, nationwide. And, and I'm not sure when you say tech justice if people will automatically understand what that means because there have been efforts for at least the last 10 years to, um, and probably more like 20, to get technology more into poorer neighborhoods, often mm-hmm. primarily black neighborhoods, um, yeah. and, and with whatever jargon we use, at-risk you know, yeah. populations, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. there's been this effort to, to get computers into those homes, and, and yeah. this is talking about something else, something on the inside, yes. not just getting the equipment to people, but making sure yes. that the equipment itself is proper. Exactly. That's, a, that's an excellent distinction. And I would say one way to think about it is that so much of the technology discussion has been framed around the idea of a digital divide and increasing right. access on the part of marginalized groups to technology, but that particular way of framing the problem assumes that the technology is a given. Those same communities had no input in deciding what technology was developed in the first place. It's just a matter of getting access to technology created by others. And so tech justice moves the conversation upstream and says it's not just about access, but it's about the design of technology, who is included, whose experiences, insights, concerns are built into the design process. And so tech justice is really about the process of development, not simply access to the final product. So I'll give you just a quick example from about a month ago. Um, Google hired contract workers in order to make its facial recognition program on its new phone um, more (laughs) inclusive because there's research that shows that most facial recognition systems um, actually have a hard time detecting people with darker skin. My colleague Joy Bulimwini at MIT has done some groundbreaking research on this. So a lot of companies are sort of scrambling to make their facial recognition systems more inclusive. Now, in order to do this, Google hired contract workers, and they were instructed to target black homeless people in Atlanta and give them $5 gift cards in order to get um, their facial images into the data set, into the training set, so that um, it would be more diverse. And in the process, people were essentially coerced to give over their facial images and weren't really told what it was for. So this is a great example of the attempt to create an inclusive product through a coercive process. 
And so what we have to think about is the process. If someone around that table at Google had an inkling about the history in which black people in particular in this country have been targeted on the part of scientists and technologists in, from Tuskegee to prisons in terms of getting their bodies as the raw material to build and hone tech, um, technology and science, they probably would have raised their hand and said, you know what, I have a feeling this is going to backfire. And indeed it did, because some of those contract workers blew the whistle, went to the media, and Google withdraw, withdrew that, um, that research in order to um, deal with the bad public fallout from that. And so, again, we're talking about um, who is included in the early design and upstream of, of technology, not simply who has access to the end product. In the in the uh, introduction uh, to your book, you introduce uh, the the concept of the new Jim Code. What does that mean exactly? The new Jim Code it names the combination of coded inequality or coded bias that's enabled through computer systems, in combination with the imagined objectivity that many people assume these systems have. And so it's this combination of discrimination, but presumed neutrality that comes together in our current digital infrastructure. And what the term is trying to do is build on this um, idea developed by Michelle Alexander in the new Jim Crow, in which she shows through her book, how successive institutions have built on the previous regime of racial domination from slavery to Jim Crow, to ghettoization, to mass incarceration, that these different systems have built upon one upon the other. And what the new Jim Code is articulating is how technology continues to play a part in enabling forms of social control under the name of, under the guise of progress and innovation. So it's trying to give us a language to name the reality that we're living in, that this kind of shiny software and hardware that seems to be brand new, but to show how histories of discrimination are built into our, our current reality. And this is, has become a high-tech version of separate but equal. Certainly. And I think one of the things that's a, a sort of different from previous forms of racial control and discrimination is that going back to your first example about getting you know, the targeted advertising on your computer, in many ways, consumers, so long as we think of ourselves as consumers, we create a demand for certain forms of um, digital um, uh, sort of these products, right? And so unlike, say, a, a previous era, we actually in, in some ways enjoy the convenience. We, in, we enjoy the tailored marketing because it seems like, oh, my, my computer knows me. <laughs> it's actually targeting things just for me. It makes you feel special. And what we have to start to understand is that same ability to target you that makes you feel good also enables the, the potential to exclude you if, say, an advertiser doesn't want you to have a certain kind of job or certain kind of housing. So it's the duplicity of these tech fixes. Not, it's not all bad. And so we need to wrestle with the way that our demand for certain kinds of convenience and digital recognition is, is part of the issue. It's not just a top-down imposition from sort of, you know, the higher-ups that's creating the problem that I'm describing in the book. And, and this, this is really about getting the, the developers to become 
more diverse so that in the designing of these systems, things that might not have occurred to designers up to this point would be included in the process? Certainly the diversity of the tech workforce is one serious issue and sort of one um, pillar of change that has to be urgently addressed. But that in itself is not going to address the wide sweeping problem that I'm describing. A quick example is a computer scientist um, who uh, started his own app, and he was a, a black man, and he wanted the voice of AI in his app to reflect him. And so a lot of our digital assistants, you know, have a white feminine voice, right? Um, Siri and all the others. <laughs> yeah, I was, and so he, Siri he wants, is exactly what came to that. mind. Yeah, and so he thought, why don't we change this up? You know, why don't we have a more diverse, reflection in in the the voice of the ai and so he wanted himself to do this so this reflects what might happen if you had a more diverse tech workforce but in the end he decided not to go forward with that because he he decided through various kinds of market research that people wouldn't want to use his app because the prejudice around around this was so strong and so he ultimately sort of submitted to the market rather than try to impose a new kind of social values to make things more diverse, which tells me that we can't just rely on a more diverse tech workforce to begin to shift the, the design process. We have to think about how all of us are complicit in reproducing certain forms of social prejudice that the, that the designers are also catering to. So it's a two-way stream in which both the wider society, wider public has to take stock of the way that in our own lives, we reproduce certain forms of prejudice and discrimination that then is getting built into these systems. So there's a lot of responsibility to go around. It's on the part of tech designers, but also on the part of the wider public to take stock of the racism, sexism, and classism in our midst. Do you think it's... I, I don't want to use the the top down bottom up um, way of describing this. So let me let me put it this way: Is do you think it will be more effective to work from the inside out rather than the outside in? And what what I mean by that mm-hmm. is by having uh, you know a, a diverse workforce that's developing this stuff as opposed to. Uh, government acknowledgement or corporate mm-hmm. acknowledgement in in trying to make these changes. You know, I think the the the, the best models that I'm seeing so far in terms of organizing, um, shifting the narrative, pushing companies um, in terms of the kinds of technologies that they're developing is a combination of people in the inside and outside working together in collaboration. There's a great institute called AI Now that's based in New York, who that's co-directed by someone in academia and someone who was a, a former um, employee in one of the big tech companies. And eventually she had to leave because she was, um, you know, there, she was a whistleblower in some things that were happening in the company around sexual assault and discrimination. And there was retaliation from within the company. So now she's solely working with AI Now. But the model of working both with it inside and outside together, I think, is one of the strongest because there's certain things that people working within these companies know and have access to and have more um, clout in terms of when they say something, especially the engineers within these companies, because within any company, there's a hierarchy in and of itself. 
And oftentimes the engineers are the ones who sort of um, have the most clout, you know, in terms of when, when they say or have criticisms. And so when people speak up within these companies, but also that there's a loud enough public outcry, um, whether it's on social media or through various kinds of um, policy debates, I think that can have a great effect. There's a hashtag called Tech Won't Build It. Um, that's a combination of tech workers and their allies that is essentially saying that we're not going to build certain technologies that are used in the military or policing, surveillance, or with ICE. And so this is a great sort of social media campaign that's a combination of insiders and outsiders, and I would really love to see more um, attention and power being directed towards the, these collaborations. Are, are the flaws in in the uh, technology that we've been sort of taken over by, are they systemic or is it a collection of glitches that can be repaired? I think it's more useful to think of it as systemic. Um, when you think of it as a glitch, then usually the solution is simply focused narrowly on tweaking something within the technology, within the algorithm to get rid of the glitch. And then next week we have another glitch. And then the week after that we have another glitch because we've narrowly focused on just sort of fixing that one particular algorithm or software um, rather than zooming the lens out and asking ourselves, why do we repeatedly have these glitches? Why does this keep happening? Because once we begin to look at it in more in terms of that broader landscape, I think whatever we decide to do will have a much more lasting and sustainable um, effect in terms of um, thinking about tech design. Um, I, I guess what I am getting at is because it seems like we've come a really long way down the tech road. Um, is this, is it, does it require a do-over? <laughs> if that were possible, but well, I do. that's what that's what I, I'm getting yeah, at. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because how, think, you know how um, do we how, how do yeah. it's such a big undertaking. Um, yeah. Is it just a matter of today forward, and it will eventually, you no. know, come to pass? I think one one way to look at it is in the context of um, like facial recognition systems. There are some cities around the country that are completely banning the use of facial recognition systems, especially on the part of police. So this, this is an example maybe of a local version of do-over saying, yes, we have this technology, but we're not going to use it. We're not going to enable it. And so we, I think we want to think beyond a singular technology. We want to have a way of... Um, um, governing technology um, in a way that we can ask these questions before they're developed. Just because we can develop something doesn't mean we should. And we need a process that's democratic and participatory in order to determine which things we want to develop and not. I would urge all of us not to assume that any given technology is inevitable, that it is that we have no question but to go along with it and only tweak the edges of it. I think we need to pull back and and think be, think um, very critically about um, you know whether we even need certain forms of technology. And other examples in the context of education, you know, there's a lot of technologies being adopted in our schools and in our communities, in which students and families are now kind of revolting against. So there was a walkout in among Brooklyn students 
about a year ago in which the educational software that they had been using, they really hated because they had about 15 to 20 minutes of time with their teachers a week. Meanwhile, they were sitting behind these screens and they decided, you know what, this isn't real education. We hate this. <laughs> Similarly, in a, in a town in Kansas, there was another um, learning system that was adopted, again, without much input from the community. The, the, uh, I guess the, um, you know, the school council adopted it and the, it was having all kinds of issues. Kids with disabilities were having um, issues with it. Kids, um, you know, kids from all different social strata. And so the families, again, revolted and forced um, the schools to take it out. And so this is after the fact. What would it look like before these systems are actually adopted for communities to be consulted, for students to be part of the decision-making process, for families um, to be consulted? And so we want an infrastructure that would enable that sort of informed decision-making upstream so that people don't have to protest and revolt after the fact, right? Um, but in this case, it's a good example where just throwing in technology to fix some kind of problem, whether it's, um, you know, student access to various kinds of information or tailored education, all the buzzwords that usually go along with some, um, you know, marketing of some technology, we need to really um, be able to pierce through the rhetoric of tech utopianism and, and think about um, whether more technology is the answer or maybe paying teachers more and changing the way that, you know, we engage students through the arts and humanities to, to, to make things more relatable and interesting and creative um, that doesn't necessarily rely on some kind of tech fix. So I think in all of our institutions, we're being sold um, a technological version of progress, and we need to <laughs> ask ourselves whether that's really the answer. More with Ruha Benjamin, Associate Professor of African American Studies at Princeton and author of Race After Technology is Straight A. <laughs> Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives, but we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe and save lives. The Tom Sumner Program.com 
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you are worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. The Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again, this time from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, here Elvis from Graceland in the Sky. Soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, Pearly Gate Rock. All dug up. Lying in the Chapel and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes, the king inside. 
a must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from Heaven, send $9.95 in check or money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian residents, add $3. The Tom Sumner Program.com This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with Ruha Benjamin, Associate Professor of African American Studies at Princeton and author of Race After Technology, is straight ahead. Is It seems to me, on a, on a sort of hopeful note, that we're, we've reached a plateau with the development of technology where it's not a couple of guys in a garage anymore. <laughs> you know, they just come out with a product and say, here it is as yeah. is. That, yeah. that there's, there's enough input into the development of things that there's room to make it more inclusive yeah. from the ground up or from the inside out. Um, yeah, certainly, certainly. I, I, when you were talking about technologies and whether we, you know, really need them or not, I think of all the time I spend walking around the living room looking for my remote control and how many times <laughs> I walk past the television. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> when I could just as easily just walk over to the TV and push the button. Um, That's great. And, yeah, and it, I'm a little it, it concerned. It's a kind of dependence. And and I'm um, a little concerned about driverless cars. I'm still pretty skeptical about autonomous vehicles. I mean, I think you should remain skeptical. I have a um, I have a colleague who's written a great book called Artificial Unintelligence, and she did some firsthand <laughs> sort of field work on autonomous cars for listeners who are interested to show not only that they're, you know, and we've seen examples in the news recently with the fatality involving an autonomous car, um, in which, going back to your remote control example, introducing these, uh, you know, these seemingly more efficient, um, you know, technologies into our mix often creates the, the, it has a ripple effect and then which we try to adapt our entire infrastructure to cater and make this technology um, possible. So creating an, our, our urban design and changing our entire cities to make these, these cars possible is one of those examples in which we adapt to the technology um, by introducing it in ways that may not actually serve us. And so I think um, in her case, Meredith Broussard, who's written this um, artificial unintelligence, she, she calls for a ban on autonomous vehicles. And others have said, rather than invest in this, what if we invested more in a truly, um, you know, a, 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 a bigger public transportation infrastructure, really put the money, the resources, the innovation into public transportation, which would also have a great impact on our climate crisis as well. And so I think we just need to think beyond the, the, um, the idea that just because some technology is in the works that we necessarily have to adopt it and conform to that technology in other ways. This is absolutely fascinating, and with uh, on the subject of autonomous vehicles, I don't know if you're uh, 
friend or colleague uh, came across, mm -hmm. there were some really uh, funny results of some testing done in Australia where, mm. where the, um, the recognition systems in the vehicles were being yeah. thrown off by kangaroos because it turns out oh, when they're goodness. airborne, yeah. when they would hop, it would misread yeah. the distance. <laughs> I didn't. I haven't come across oh, that. She, you got to track it down. It was a Japanese yeah, company doing research in Australia, and kangaroos were fouling up the works because when they when they hopped, it completely flummoxed the the uh, the recognition system in the automobile to judge how far away that object was. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Any, I'll anyway, look it up. Thanks. anyway. <laughs> um, I, 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 we're actually a little bit over the time that I had told you we would be talking, but um, yeah. I'm enjoying this conversation so much, but I don't want to let you go without uh, once again talking about how people can find out more about what we're sure. talking about. I give every guest an opportunity to do that, and you mentioned there are some great resources uh, linked to your site. And, and again, Absolutely. what is your site? Sure. It's Ruha Benjamin, R-U-H-A, Benjamin.com. And um, you can go there, look at the resources tab. My research is published there and links to this book and a few other books that I've written. Well, and uh, it's, it's an excellent website. And the book, Race After Technology, comes right up on the, on the first page. Yeah. Um, Ruhai, it's been a real pleasure and an honor to uh, visit with you. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. No, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. All right, take care. Take care. Ruha Benjamin is Associate Professor of African American Studies at Princeton and the author of a new book, Race After Technology. And uh, we're going to have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <music> Ladies and gentlemen, in Philip Rapp's creation, The Bickersons. What's, what's the matter? All right, all right. Blanche, Blanche. I'm putting a ribbon in my hair. Where are you going? I'm not going anywhere. I just thought I'd like to look nice this morning. Why? I knew you'd forget. You don't even know what day this is. I do, too. It's rent day. It is not. Today happens to be our wedding anniversary. Well, I knew it was a sad occasion of some kind. What kind of a remark is that? That's supposed to be funny. No, it isn't supposed to be funny, Blanche. I'm just groggy, that's all. I'm sorry. I knew you'd forget. I didn't forget it. So why didn't you say something? Blanche, I just opened my eyes. You forgot it. I tell you, I didn't forget it. But even if I did, you'd remind me of it. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Is that all? No plans? We've been married eight years. Don't you want to do something? No, it's too late to do anything. It's sad about you. How you suffer. I didn't get such a bargain, you know. Okay, okay. There's better fish in the ocean than the one I caught. There's better bait, too. I'm serious. Okay, I'm sorry. You hack away at me in the morning and I'm so exhausted, I don't know what I'm saying. 
You wouldn't be so exhausted if you went to bed at a reasonable hour. I had to work overtime. Pour me some coffee. Get paid? I'll get paid. What time did you get home? 12.30. If you got home at 12.30, why were you so long getting into bed? I know for a fact you didn't come to bed until almost 2. I was in the kitchen putting the stuff away. What stuff? What's the matter, Blanche? You told me to bring stuff home for the party tonight. You invited a lot of your crumb friends and you told me to bring stuff, so I brought stuff. Did you bring the potatoes for the potato salad? I brought potatoes. Did you pair them? I paired them. All of them? All except one. He had a big knob on top and I couldn't find a mate for him. I meant... I know what you meant, Blanche. I even boiled them last night. Where are my pants? Who stole my pants? Nobody stole your pants. I just looked in the wastebasket and they're not there. My shoes are missing from the sink. Don't be silly, John. Your pants are on a hanger in the closet and your shoes are in the shoe rack. How'd they get there? I put them there. Well, I wish you'd quit throwing my things around like that. (laughs) Gotta get them or I'll be late. You won't be late. Here are your pants. Thanks. Blanche, these aren't my pants. They're not? Then whose pants are they? That's a good question, only I should be asking. Don't be so snobby. They were baggy, so I pressed them. Baggy? Took me an hour to find the right crease. Be careful you don't wrinkle them now. What's the difference? I like my pants to look lived in. You're dragging the tops on the floor. Hold your trouser leg with your left hand, then step in with your right foot. Blanche, I've been putting on my own pants for over 40 years, and I don't need you to be the foreman of it. Hand me my Which one? It doesn't matter. I want to use it for a belt. My suspenders are broken. Why don't you wear your belt? I'm using it to keep the soles from falling off my shoes. John Fitterson, you know you're just... I know it. I know I haven't got a belt. Where's my shirt? Where did you hide my shirt? I didn't hide it anywhere. Well, where is it? I draped it around the canary's cage so he could sleep. Is my shirt the only rag you could find to cover the bird's cage with? Hasn't hurt anything, has it? No, but I don't like the way that bird pokes into my pockets. Every time I take a cigarette out, I'm smoking bird seed. Why do you have to cover the cage anyway? The canary is sensitive to light. Well, get him a pair of sunglasses. Leave my shirt alone. No bird's going to sleep later than I do. Ah, shut up. John, why must you be so mean on our anniversary? Blanche, I'm not mean. I'm worried. Business is bad. My job is hanging by a thread. You never should have quit your other job. You made me quit. You said it wasn't dignified selling bowling balls. You were embarrassed to answer when people asked you what your husband sold. Well, it sounded like it was trying to start a fight. That's no problem for you. I gotta go. Here, and don't forget your samples. I won't forget. This darn vacuum cleaner gets heavier every day. Straighten this hose around my neck, will you, Blanche? There, there. Now, got everything? I think so. No, wait a minute. You got any money? Well, there's 50 cents in the sugar bowl. 50 cents? You can bring me the change when you come home. Now listen, Blanche, something's got to be done about this. I can't go down to work like a pauper every day. A man's got to have a couple dollars in his pocket. Now don't yell at me. I don't mind going with torn clothes and holes in my socks, but I'm not going to suffer through those lunches anymore. What's the matter with your lunches? You ought to know. You pack them for me. I'm just getting sick of carrying my lunch to work in a paper sack. Why can't I go to the restaurant like the other fellas? John, what are you talking about? I haven't fixed your lunch for two years. Oh, Blanche, every morning of my life I find my lunch wrapped in brown paper on the side of the sink. John, that's the garbage. Goodbye, Blanche. Goodbye, dear. Happy anniversary.
for a new generation. Tom Sumner Program.com. Tom Sumner Program.com. The Tom Sumner Program.com. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 